You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. Some of you guys are like, Habakkuk, is that a book in the Bible? It is. It is in the Old Testament, towards the end of the Old Testament. He's one of the minor prophets. But here's the, here's the grace of God, that in your Bible there is a table of contents. So if you're not sure where Habakkuk is, that's okay. Don't be afraid to use that table of contents. And those of you who use the Bible on your phone, you're at a distinct advantage today, where you can just go in there and find the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2 is where we're going to be studying today. We're kicking off a new series All right, let's pray as we dive into this passage. Heavenly Father, we come to you expectant to hear from you. Lord, we come attentively giving our attention to you, and we ask that you would speak to us through your living word. Lord, your word that never fails, though the grass withers and the flowers fade. Lord, your word lasts forever, and we we are thankful for it. And Lord, we come to it expectant to hear from you, and we ask that you'd speak to us and give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. It's uh, it's the beginning of a new year, and I'm sure that many of you, like me, were happy to say goodbye to 2020. It was just a difficult year, wasn't it? It was a year filled with frustration and difficulty, and it's nice to turn a new page and look forward and put the past behind us. But at the same time, we we do realize, right, that just by changing out our calendars, we're not making all of the problems and difficulties magically disappear, right? If there's one thing that this past year taught us, is that there are a lot of things in life that we cannot predict and we cannot control. That's what we learned in 2020. And I think that so many of us, you know, if we look back to where we were a year ago, so many of us started out last year by making big plans about what we were going to do. But so many of those plans got canceled or they got ruined because of things which none of us could have predicted and which none of us envisioned, right? Travel plans were canceled, uh, business projections were totally changed from what we expected. And instead, we ended up, many of us, facing situations and circumstances that we would have never chosen if we could choose. And so as we begin this new year, here's what I want to do. I want to take the first three weeks of this year, before we get back into our book study of First and Second Kings, we're going to take these first three weeks to lay a foundation. And in the first three weeks of January, we're going to be doing a series on the topic of vision. Now, maybe you're saying, Nick, wait a second. What are you thinking doing a topic on vision? I thought the one thing we learned last year is that we cannot predict or envision what the future holds. Well, listen, the way that I want to talk about vision is not in the sense of predicting the future or or envisioning the future. Here's what I want to do when I talk about vision. I want to talk about developing God's vision for our lives, developing God's vision for you as an individual and for us as a church, asking a question, God, what is your vision? Where is it that you want to take us as individuals and together as a church? And I think this is all the more important because we live in a world that is unpredictable. Since we live in a world that is unpredictable, we need 
need a foundation. We need a foundation that is stable so that no matter what happens, no matter what this next year brings our way, whether individually or in the world at large, no matter what the future brings, we want to be asking a question, what are the things that God wants us to be prioritizing and pursuing no matter what's going on in our lives or in the world? How does God want to work in our lives? How does God want to work through our lives? Where does he want to take us and how does he want to get us there? Jesus talked about this very thing, the very importance of having a foundation because sooner or later, storms and trials, difficulties and hardships will come your way. It's inevitable. And Jesus said, if you have the right foundation, then you will be able to withstand those things. And if you have the wrong foundation, then those things, when they come, they will mess you up and they will destroy you. But he, again, he said, if you have the right foundation, not only will you be able to withstand the storms of life when they come, but you'll even be able to thrive in the midst of even the most difficult of circumstances. So what is that foundation that Jesus said that we need to have in order to do that? Well, we're going to be talking about that today in our study, and it is part of God's vision for your life. Listen, what, what, do, I, what do I mean when I say the word vision? I'll define it this way. Vision can be most simply defined as a desired outcome. That's what it is. Vision is a desired outcome. It's the outcome that you desire to see. Now, we all have things in our lives that we desire to see happen. But the big question for us as we begin this year is this. What is God's desired outcome for our lives? What is God's vision for our lives? And then what are the steps that need to be taken to take us or lead us to that place? Well, listen, here at Whitefields, we have three statements that we have used for years to describe what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and who we aspire to be as a church. So three statements, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and who we aspire to be as a church. Here's what those three statements are. At Whitefields, we seek to be, first of all, receptive to the word of God. Secondly, we seek to be responsive in worship. And thirdly, we seek to be redemptive in the world. So that's what we would say. These are things that it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And these are things that it means that, that we aspire to be as a church. Receptive to the word of God, responsive in worship, and redemptive in the world. So today we're going to be looking at the first of those statements, and we're going to be talking about what it means to be receptive to the Word of God and why it's so vital and important for our lives. The title of today's message is A Vision for Transformation. In our study today, we're going to be looking at the prophet Habakkuk, and if you're not familiar with Habakkuk, then you're in for a treat today. And here's what we're going to see in our takeaway truth that we give you every week, this sentence that functions as our outline. Here's our sentence for today. We seek to be receptive to the Word of God, because it is God's inspired means for revelation and transformation. So we seek to be receptive to the word of God because it is God's inspired means for revelation and transformation. Let's take that sentence and we'll break it down as we study today. So first of all, we seek to be receptive to the word of God. What, is it, what does it mean to be receptive to the word of God? Well, look at what it says in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. The prophet Habakkuk is speaking, and here's what he says. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. I will look out to see what he, that's God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. There are three things that we see here from the prophet Habakkuk which show us what it means to be receptive to the word of God. Here's what we're going to see. Habakkuk was 
first of all, attentive. Secondly, he was expectant. And thirdly, he was conversant. Let's, let's go through each of those. First of all, Habakkuk was attentive. Look at what he says in the first part of the verse. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he says to me. Habakkuk is waiting to hear from God. He wants to hear a word from the Lord. And so he says, I will wait for God to speak to me in the same way that the watchman who guard the city walls, go up to their towers and keep an eye out for any movement below. That's the kind of attentiveness he will have. You know, back in those days, cities were surrounded by walls. Now, we generally think in our day that cities are the, the places where there's a higher concentration of crime and danger than rural areas. But back in the, the ancient world, it was just the opposite. The rural areas were dangerous, and the place where you were most safe was in a city because cities were protected by walls. And one of the things that made them so safe is that all along the top of the wall, they would have stationed watchmen. And those watchmen would be looking out all the time, night and day, for intruders and attackers, any movement going on outside the city walls. The closest thing we would have to this today would be like the guards who guard prisons or the guards who guard military bases and things like that. Well, during a watchman's shift, they were absolutely attentive, right? It wasn't a relaxing job. They were on high alert the entire time during their shift, constantly scanning the horizon, looking everywhere to see if there was any movement whatsoever. And what Habakkuk is saying is that he is going to listen, he's going to wait for a word from the Lord with the same degree of attentiveness as one of these watchmen on the wall. If God has anything to say to him, Habakkuk is not going to miss it because he's listening, he's waiting attentively. So that's the first thing we see. He was attentive. The second thing we see is that he was expectant. Habakkuk knew that it wasn't only a question, it wasn't a question of if God was going to speak to him. It was a, really a question of when God was going to speak to him. He was sure that God wanted to speak to him and that God would speak to him. So he waited attentively and he also waited expectantly that God had something to say and was going to speak to him. But the third thing we see here is that Habakkuk was also conversant. So attentive, expectant, and also conversant. He says at the end of verse 1, there in chapter 2, that he is waiting for God to answer him regarding his complaint. Now what does that mean? What is Habakkuk's complaint? Well, Habakkuk's complaint is really more of a question, and it's found in chapter 1. In chapter 1 of the book of Habakkuk, we see Habakkuk's complaint, or rather his question. The book of Habakkuk, by the way, is essentially the record of a conversation that Habakkuk had with God. It begins in chapter 1 with Habakkuk asking a question to which God responds. Then God's response actually causes Habakkuk to have another question. So he asks that question, and then God responds. And then chapter 3, the final chapter of the book, is Habakkuk responding to what God had said in praise and worship. That, that's kind of the outline for the book. But here where we pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1, what we see is Habakkuk is waiting for God's response to his second question. Now here's, here's Habakkuk's first question. Let's look at it in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. His first question was this. He's looking out at the land of Judah where he lives, and he sees that there's a ton of wickedness. There's, there's immorality. There are bad things happening. And he asks God, God, 
Don't you see what is going on in our land? Don't you see the immorality? Don't you see the wickedness? Don't you see the evil? And God, if you see it, why aren't you doing something about it? He was frustrated because he felt that God was not doing enough about what was going on in his society at the time. Now, as we've been studying the, the book of 2 Kings, we've seen that the, at the, this time, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom called Israel, and there was a southern kingdom called Judah. Well, Habakkuk lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he lived at a time where the people of Judah had, by and large, turned away from God, and they had gotten into a lot of wicked and terrible things. For example, at this time, we know that in Jerusalem, at the temple of God, they had pagan idols both in the courtyard and inside the temple. They were worshiping pagan idols in the temple of God. Furthermore, we know that at this time, there was lewdness and kind of immorality that was not only tolerated in Israel, it was celebrated publicly. And so here's Habakkuk, a man of God, and he's looking out at all these things that are happening, and he cries out to God and says, God, don't you see this? Why aren't you doing something about all this immorality? Why don't you put a stop to it? Why don't you act? Why don't you do something at all? I wonder if any of you have ever had those same kinds of thoughts, have ever had those same kinds of questions yourselves. You look around at society and you wonder, God, why don't you intervene? Why don't you do something? Well, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, God responds to Habakkuk's first question. God tells Habakkuk, and here's his answer. He says, yes, I have seen all the wickedness of Judah, and I am going to do something about it. And here's what I'm going to do. I will raise up the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans is another name for the Babylonians. Now, you might wonder, why do they have two names? It's, it's pretty simple. Babylon was the capital city. So oftentimes, they were known as the Babylonians. But Chaldea was the name of the region. So sometimes they're called the Babylonians. Sometimes they're called the Chaldeans. We're talking about the same group of people. God is saying, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. And I'm going to allow the Babylonians to attack Judah and conquer the city of Jerusalem. And this is going to serve two purposes. On the one hand, it will be God's judgment upon the people of Judah for the wickedness that they've been involved in. But on the other hand, it's going to serve as a wake-up call to get their attention so they'll hopefully turn back to God in their hearts. Well, listen, when Habakkuk hears that, that God is going to raise up the Babylonians, well, that was not at all what he had expected to hear. And it was very unsettling for him. It actually raised more questions in his mind than he had had before God said this to him. Because listen, as wicked as the people of Judah were at this time, their wickedness was nothing compared to the wickedness of the Babylonians. They didn't even hold a candle to the Babylonians when it came to wickedness and ungodliness. Listen, this would be kind of like if you cried out to God because you said, I look around America and there's so many problems here in the United States. God, aren't you going to act and do something? And God responded and said, yes, I see the wickedness here in the United States. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up North Korea to come and take over the United States. And you would say, well, that's not exactly what I had in mind, right? The, the, the solution sounds worse than the problem, right? That how is that better? Well, that's exactly the kind of situation we're talking about here with having Babylon come and take over Judah. Now listen, uh, now Habakkuk's like, well, 
now that you answered that first question, now I actually have more questions. Here's my, uh, originally, he was disturbed that God was not doing enough. But now, he's disturbed by the way that God is going to deal with the problems in Judah. He's disturbed that he would use an even more wicked nation to judge the wickedness of Judah. He wonders, how is that even fair? And so, in, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, Habakkuk asks his second question, which is this. God, if you are just, God, if you are fair, then how is it right for you to judge, the Babylon, or judge Judah by the Babylonians? Shouldn't you be judging the Babylonians too? Aren't they so wicked that they deserve judgment as well? And that's where we picked up the story, right in the middle of it, there in chapter 2. Habakkuk is waiting for God's response to this question. Now, right after this, understand God is going to respond to this question. And, and here's what he tells Habakkuk. He says, yes, I am going to judge Babylon also, but not yet. Before I judge Babylon, I'm going to use them to judge Judah. And yet, God says, my judgment of Judah, believe it or not, is going to be for the good of Judah. In fact, it will be one of the best things that ever happens to them. God is going to use this time of judgment and hardship where Judah is going to be carried into exile in Babylon. He is going to use this exile, this hardship, being conquered by an evil nation. He's going to use this for their good. He's going to use this to accomplish something that couldn't have and wouldn't have happened otherwise, which is to turn their hearts back to him and to get them to seek him once again in the scriptures. But listen, in the final chapter of the book of Habakkuk, which is chapter 3, Habakkuk responds to God's response by worshiping and praising him. Now we'll get to that in a minute, but here's what I want you to see. Habakkuk shows us that being receptive to the word of God means being conversant, right? That's what we talked about. He was attentive, he was expectant, but he's also conversant. Here's why. Habakkuk is having a conversation with the Lord. He's bringing his questions, he's bringing his concerns, the things that he's struggling with, the things that he's struggling to understand, and he brings those questions before the Lord and says, God, here's what I'm wrestling with and struggling with, and then he listens attentively and expectantly for what God has to say about it. That's what it means to be receptive to the word of God. It reminds me of another story, by the way, which is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we read about a king named Jehoshaphat. And, and in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat and the army of Israel, they're surrounded by the armies of three other nations that have teamed up on them and are coming at them from different sides. And here's what it says there in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 3. It says, Jehoshaphat Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord. Now, I want you to hear that phrase again. Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord. I love that. You know why? Because other translations put it this way. It says, Jehoshaphat was terrified. He was terrified, but he resolved to seek the Lord for guidance in that situation. You could put it this way. Jehoshaphat was shaken, and yet he stirred up his soul to seek the Lord. He was shaken and yet stirred at the same time. Here's why I love this. Because a lot of people would say that fear is the opposite of faith. Maybe you've heard people say that yourself. Uh, the fear is the opposite of faith. It can only be one or the other. Either you're afraid or you have faith in God. But here's what we see with Jehoshaphat. We see it's 
possible to be afraid and to have faith at the same time. In fact, I would put it this way. Fear is not the opposite of faith. Fear is the occasion for faith. Listen, when you have doubts like Habakkuk, when you have fears like Jehoshaphat, these are the opportunities for you to exercise faith and to grow in your faith. Listen, Habakkuk had a doubt, and he came to God with his doubt, seeking what God would say about it, attentively, expectantly waiting to hear from God, conversant with God about it. Jehoshaphat, he's facing an impossible situation. He's afraid, he's terrified, and yet he determines to seek the Lord. How does he seek the Lord? Well, I love what it says. Look at what he prays in chapter 12 of that same chapter. I love this phrase. He prays this phrase at the end of the verse there where he says this. Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. Guys, doesn't that sum up how we live our lives so many times? He's coming to the Lord conversantly. He's bringing his fears. He's bringing his concerns. He's bringing his struggles before the Lord. And he's waiting attentively and expectantly for what God will speak and do in that situation. That's a great picture of what it means to be receptive to the word of God. It means that when you open your Bible, you are engaging with what God is saying. You're not just passively reading words on a page. No, you're coming to God with your questions, with your struggles, with your fears, with your doubts, and you're listening to what he has to say and speak into those situations. It's a conversation. So when you open your Bible, you're expectant that God has something to say to you. You're attentive to what he has to say, and you're waiting to see what he's going to say so you can receive it. Now, that's what it means to be receptive to the Word of God. But why is it important that we be uh, receptive to the Word of God? Well, let's talk about that. That's the next part of our sentence. We seek to be receptive to the Word of God because it is God's inspired means for, first of all, revelation. Revelation. In Habakkuk chapter 2, as we continue on in these, these few verses, Habakkuk is waiting, remember, for the Lord's response to his second question. And we read there in chapter 2, verse 2, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. This was a revelation that God gave to Habakkuk, and Habakkuk was to write it down so that others could read it, so that they could then act upon it and upon what it said. You know, here's what the Bible tells us about the nature of the Bible, right? So the Bible says, when you're reading the Bible, here's what you are reading. This is what's going on. It says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, what's interesting about this passage, know this. This comes from the very last thing that Paul the Apostle wrote before he died, the very last writing of the Apostle Paul before he died. Shortly after this, Paul was executed for his faith. And Paul mentions in this letter to Timothy that he knows that he's going to die very soon. And so with his final days, with his final writing, his final script, Paul writes a letter to his protege in the faith, Timothy. And he wants Timothy to understand here at the end of his life with the last thing he's ever going to write, what does he write? He says, Timothy, I want you to understand the value of reading and studying 
the scriptures. I want you to understand the value of reading and studying the Holy Scriptures. Now keep in mind, by the time Paul wrote this, remember this is the end of Paul's life. At this time, all of the Old Testament scriptures were already accepted as Holy Scripture inspired by God, but not only the Old Testament scriptures. By this time, the Gospels were already written and were in distribution amongst the churches, uh, amongst the early church and the early Christians. Many of the epistles in the New Testament, over half of the New Testament was already written and distributed and recognized as Holy Scripture in the same way that the Old Testament was recognized as Holy Scripture. So when Paul is talking about all Scripture, he's not just talking about the Old Testament. He's also talking about most of the New Testament. And here's what he says. He says, Timothy, when you read the Scriptures... Here's what you need to know. These are not just the musings or the opinions of different people throughout history as they tried to figure out God. No, as you read the scriptures, these are the very words of God that are breathed out by God. Think about your breath. Where does breath come from? It comes from your mouth, right? It comes out of your mouth. In other words, what he's saying is these words, they were written down by human hands, but they came directly from the mouth of God. And how does that work? How does that happen? Well, Peter explains that for us in his second epistle. Here's what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what we're seeing here in Habakkuk chapter 2. God is moving on Habakkuk and telling him, now write it down. Write it down so other people can read it, so they can know what my word says, and so they can act upon it. The Bible, in other words, what is it? It is God's revelation of himself to us. It is through these scriptures that we can know who God is, what God is like, and what his will is for your life. It is through these scriptures that you can know how to be saved, the way of salvation and eternal life. Look at what it says there in verse 3 of chapter 2 there in Habakkuk. God says this about this vision he's giving Habakkuk. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. In other words, he's saying, these things I'm telling you, they have not yet happened, and it's still going to be a little while before they take place. But it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God is telling Habakkuk, listen, these things I have told you, you can be sure that they will happen, even if they don't happen right away, because the nature of God's word is that it is sure, it is reliable, it does not lie, and what God says always comes to pass. And you know what? About 30 years after God gave Habakkuk these words, the Babylonians did rise up and they attacked Judah and they conquered Jerusalem and they carried the people of Judah away into exile. And then you know what else happened? About 50 years after that, God raised up another nation, the Persians, and the Persians defeated the Babylonians just as God had said they would here in the book of Habakkuk chapter 2. And so, in other words, just as God had promised, everything God said here in this prophecy did come to pass within the decades that followed. Just as God had promised, God used all of these difficulties and the exile for the good of the people of Judah to turn their hearts back to the Lord and to help them rekindle a passion for seeking God through his word. All of these things that God had promised would take place did take place just as he said he would. 
So we seek to be receptive to the word of God because it is God's inspired means of revelation. It is God's revelation of himself and his will for your life and his plans for the future. It's through these scriptures that you can know the God who created you. You can know what his purpose is for your life. It is through these scriptures that you can hear his voice speaking to you. It is through these scriptures that you can get to know this God who loves you so much that he came to earth to rescue you and redeem you so you could spend eternity with him. But listen, that's not all that God's word does. There's another thing. Remember we said, we seek to be receptive to the word of God because it is God's inspired means for revelation, but it's also something else. The last part of our sentence, it's also God's inspired means for transformation. Transformation. In Habakkuk chapter 3, we see Habakkuk's response to the word that God revealed to him, this revelation from God. And here's what we see. This revelation from God, this word from the Lord, it transformed Habakkuk's entire way of thinking. It transformed his entire way of thinking. It caused him to go from questioning God to worshiping God. Look at what it says at the end of the book of Habakkuk, one of my favorite passages. It says this in chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation, because God the Lord is my strength, and he makes my feet like a deer's. He makes me tread in high places. Now, think about what Habakkuk's saying there. He says, even if I will. These are, this is the word, these are the words of faith. Even if I will. Think about what he's saying there. Even if the fig tree has no blossoms, even if there are no grapes on the vine, even if the cattle barns are empty. Listen, in an agrarian society, that's how you made your money. Farming animals. To not have these things means you don't have money to pay the bills, to put food on your own table, to take care of your family. What he's describing here is he's saying, even if there is a complete crisis, a complete financial crisis, even if the very worst things that are even imaginable do happen, I will still praise the Lord. Now put this in terms of your own life. Even if my business fails, even if I get laid off, even if my car breaks down and I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet, even if the very worst things I can even imagine do happen to me, I resolve that I will rejoice and take joy in the God of my salvation. Even if I will. I want you to say that to yourself and write it down. Even if I will. This is the language of faith. And, and think about what a change this is in Habakkuk's attitude from what we saw in chapter 1. In chapter 1, Habakkuk was skeptical of God, but now here in, the, in chapter 3, at the end, after hearing the word from God, now Habakkuk is surrendering his life to the Lord in faith. What happened in the meantime that caused him to go from skeptical of God to surrendering to God? What happened is Habakkuk received the word from the Lord. And the word of the Lord transformed Habakkuk's mindset and his entire way of thinking. Listen, in Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us this. He says, 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to know what is the good and perfect will of God. Do you know how you do that? How do you transform your way of thinking and bring your thoughts into accordance with God's will? You do that in the same way that Habakkuk did it, by coming to the word of God and receiving it, receiving the word of God. John Stott puts it this way. I think this is, this is glorious. He says, we must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. That's what it means to receive the word of God. Listen, the word of God is like a surgeon's knife that cuts to the core of who you are. But it doesn't cut you to, to hurt you. It cuts you to cure you and to put right those things that are out of place or broken in your life. You know, the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. It's a song which is all about the beauty and the power of God's word. And here are some of the things that that psalm says that the word of God is powerful to do in your life. It says that the word of God gives life. The word of God gives strength. It gives wisdom. It gives understanding. It gives light and direction. It keeps you from stumbling into evil and sin. In Romans chapter 10, we're told, we're told one more, that the word of God is able to produce faith and build faith as you hear it. Now, this is interesting because researchers who study human behavior, they actually agree with what the Bible says. And of course, that, that just corroborates what the Bible has always said. But here's one of the things that the researchers who look into human behavior have said as they've studied this topic in two major studies, by the way, in the past 10 years, looking at over uh, 300,000 people total. Here's what they said. They said that there's a thing called keystone habits. Now, they, they generally talk about keystone habits as being uh, kind of outsized behaviors, behaviors you can do which have an outsized impact on your life. For example, if you exercise, that exercise will help your body physically, but they say it's a keystone habit because it also improves your mental health, right? So it's kind of like in an arch, you'll have a keystone. It's a stone just like other stones, but because of where it's placed and how it's shaped, it holds the whole arch together. That's kind of like what a keystone habit is. It has, it's a behavior that has an even greater effect on your life than just the behavior itself. Well, they say there are also spiritual keystone habits. And these researchers here are the ones that they have identified that they say the most impactful behaviors you can do to transform your life and change your life. Here's what they are in this order. Number one is reading the Bible. Number two is prayer. Number three, church attendance. And number four, small group participation. That's what they are. Small group participation is number four. Now, here's what one researcher had to say about this topic. Check out what he says. He says, Bible engagement is the single most spiritually catalytic activity that a person can engage in. That's what all their research showed. And he said this, nothing has a greater impact on spiritual growth than reading the scriptures. And so guys, because the Bible says that, because everything else backs it up, I want to give you a challenge this year. Are you ready? You guys set? Here's the challenge. I want to challenge you to read through the entire Bible this year. 
I don't know if you've done it before, but if you haven't, this is the year when I want to challenge you to do it. Maybe it seems like a daunting task. You're like, how big is this thing? Like, how many pages are in there? That's a really big book. Well, listen, it's not as big as you might think. If you read the Bible for less than 15 minutes every day, you will be able to read through the entire Bible in a year. It's totally doable. And I just want you to think about and imagine how much your life would change, how much you would grow in your knowledge of the Lord, how much you would grow spiritually, how different your life would be, and, and how much growth would take place if you would read through the entire Bible this year. God will transform you, and he will grow you in incredible ways. And how do you do it? Guys, I'm prepared, okay? Out in the comments, I have printed out for you a Bible reading plan. Now, I know that many of you use the Bible on your phone. There's a great, there are great Bible reading plans in the YouVersion Bible app, and I encourage you to use those. That's how I do it as well. But for those of you who are analog and, and you're like, I want a piece of paper that I can draw on, I have those printed out for you in the comments, and I want you to pick one up today and start reading through the Bible. And I want you to read through the Bible this year because, as we saw, this is the single most important thing you can do to experience the transformation that God wants to accomplish in your life. Listen to this quote from John Wooden. He's the former coach of the UCLA basketball team, and he's talking about how growth and transformation happens. He says, when you improve a little bit each day, really big things happen. Not tomorrow, not the next day, but eventually big gains are made. Don't look for big, quick improvement, but seek small improvement one day at a time. That's the only way it happens, and when it happens, it lasts. Listen, there are things that we call spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are things like reading the Bible, prayer, church attendance, confessing your sins to other people, serving others, giving financially to the work of God. Listen, you know what spiritual disciplines are like? They're like small steps that lead you somewhere. You know, the thing about a step, you take one step and you're like, okay, I'm basically in the same place that I was. I mean, I'm not far from where I was before I took that step. But you know what happens? If you keep taking steps over and over and over, you could walk around the world. You could walk up the highest mountains. You could cross the country. See, this is the power of taking small steps consistently over time. And that's what spiritual disciplines are. But you know what? The greatest impact of all is going to come from receiving the word of God, which is why we seek to be receptive to the word of God, because it is God's inspired means for revelation and transformation. You know what's interesting? Is that in the Bible, Jesus is referred to as the word of God. Now that's interesting because the Bible is called the Word of God and Jesus is also called the Word of God. So how does that work? Which one's which, right? Well, here's how it works. The Bible is God's Word written down. Jesus is God's Word embodied for us. Think about this. What is the purpose, as we saw, of the Word of God? The purpose of the Word of God is, to, is that it is God's inspired means of revelation and transformation. And see, God has revealed himself to us through his written word, but he has revealed himself to us more fully in a greater way in his word embodied. Jesus Christ came as God's revelation of himself. And you know what Jesus did? God revealed himself to us 
through Jesus in a way that could never be expressed in words on a page. He expressed something that could never be written fully in words on a page. In other words, it's one thing to say, I love you, but it's another thing to show your love through actions. And on the cross, Jesus expressed the love of God for you in a way that went far beyond any words ever could. He did for you what you could not do for yourself. He took upon himself the judgment that you and I deserve for our sins so that you could be forgiven, so you could be redeemed, so you could be reconciled to God, so you could be cleansed, and so your name could be written in God's book of life. Listen, the message of God's word, both the written word and the embodied word, is that God loves you. And the only way to respond to this incredible love is to do exactly what Habakkuk did and surrender your life to him in faith. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 